there are two kinds of people. There are late people and there are on-time people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Can I get a round of applause from my on-time people? On-time people? All right, now my late people, be proud. You don't have to be shy. All right. I'm a recovering late person. I like to think that I'm an on-time person, but I consider a five-minute window to be on time. I suspect that might just be the attitude of a late person. Am I right, on-time people? Yeah, okay. Comedian Mike Berbiglia has a humorous bit on the difference between late people and on-time people. This is how he begins. Is it okay to quote a stand-up comedian? Henry, is that okay? (laughs) He says this. He says, my wife does this thing that drives me crazy. She's late for everything, and I'm an on-time person. So what late people don't understand about us on-time people is that we hate you. The reason why we hate you is because it's so easy to be on time. You just have to be early, and early lasts for hours, and on time just lasts a second, and then you're late forever. Friends, believe it or not, that is a perfect segue to the teaching of Jesus that we're going to hear today. Jesus tells a story, a parable, about late people and on-time people. It's a story about the future of God's kingdom. We know it's about the future because unlike his earlier stories, Jesus uses the future tense. The kingdom of heaven will be like, he says, not the usual is like. And in this future, people are either ready to go or they're not. I remember hearing from my parents uh, all the time as a kid, Brandon, are you ready to go? How about now? Are you ready? I may still hear the same thing from my wife on Sunday mornings. My friends, in the future, in the new world of God, we will either be ready or we won't, spiritually speaking. We'll be prepared or not. So Jesus tells us a story in order to urge us to be among those who are ready. Because if we're late, then we're late forever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus himself, recorded in Matthew 25, verse 1. He says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with them. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all of those bridesmaids got up 
and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him into the banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord Jesus. Here's the context. This story comes from chapter 25 of a book about Jesus that has 28 chapters. So what does that tell you, chapter 25 of 28? What's that tell you, anyone? We're near the end. We're in the final block of Jesus' teachings. There are five sections of teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, which corresponds to the five books of Moses in the Old Testament. And this is the fifth and final section. Now, at this point in the story, you should know that Jesus is approaching his death. He's already announced to his friends that the religious elite are conspiring against him, and he will be condemned to death. He will be handed over to the Romans, who will ridicule, torture, and crucify him. This combination of religious and political powers can be a toxic mix. It's what kills Jesus. So in chapter 24 and 25, Jesus gives his final teaching, and he must talk to his disciples about something he's been avoiding so far, and that is the final judgment. The end of the world as we know it. Some call chapters 24 and 25 Jesus' sermon on judgment. It's a message that makes us squirm in our seats. At least it should. Some questions Jesus addresses. What will happen at the end of time? That's chapter 24. We'll discuss this at our 11 o'clock discipleship hour. Another question, how will God make things right in the end? This world is not fair so often. How will God make things right in the end? And what does God's justice look like in light of eternity? And more personally, and Jesus encourages his disciples to think in personal terms. What will divine judgment look like for me? In light of God's mercy, yes, but also in light of God's holiness. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Knowing this to be true, Jesus preaches his final sermon on judgment. Now, it's important to note his audience. One's audience determines the content of one's speech, right? Kathy Nimmer, you gave tons of speeches during your Teacher of the Year. Your audience determines what you say, correct? Correct. We must observe from the outset that Jesus is talking to his closest followers here, not the crowds. 
This teaching begins in chapter 24, verse 3, when the disciples come to him privately with some questions they'd like answered. And so this fifth and final message on judgment is first and foremost aimed at the ears of Christians. This will prove critical, as we'll discover. So when Jesus teaches about judgment, he doesn't tell it to us straight. He tells it slant. That is, he tells a parable a simple story with profound significance. This is one of his preferred methods. It gets at us in a different way. We have a harder time shaking it loose. So at this time, it's a story about two kinds of bridesmaids, five of one and five of the other, which is really a story about two kinds of Christians. At least that's what St. Augustine believes and many other scholars These two sets of bridesmaids are similar in some ways, but they are different in others. Now, what's different about them makes all the difference for you and I. So first, let's look at what's similar. If you have your Bibles, that that might be helpful at this time. What do you see that's similar between the two sets of bridesmaids? What's similar, if you recall from hearing it, what's similar about the two sets of bridesmaids? Just someone shout something out. They both have lamps, yes. And they're both bridesmaids. I had to go to seminary to have that kind of insight. They both have lamps, and they're both bridesmaids, and they both go out to meet the groom with their lamps. Now, there's already something off about this to the original hearers. There's already something surprising, and we might not catch it because our wedding rituals are obviously different. But here's the usual way of things in first century Jewish weddings. In the first century, the the wedding was held at the groom's house or the groom's parents' house, okay? So the bridesmaids would go to the bride's house, pick her up, and then escort her to the, the, the place where the wedding would be, the groom's house or the, parent, the groom's parents' house. So that's, that's normal custom. But Jesus changes things up here, doesn't he? And his disciples know it. It'd be like me telling a story about a wedding and then saying something like, now when the groom walked down the center of the aisle, everyone stood on their feet and cheered. They turned and watched him meet his bride right? That's not how it works. And so in the same way, Jesus tells this story of a wedding, of a, of a wedding ha- circumstance that is off from the usual way of things. So why does he do this? Because he's not talking about an earthly wedding. Rather, he's talking about the heavenly banquet of the future kingdom of God. The heavenly banquet of the future kingdom of God. And he's talking about the heavenly groom, which is himself, returning to meet his bride, the church. Did you catch all that? (laughs) Jesus is talking about his bodily return to earth. After all, that's what the disciples question him about. When will the end come? And Jesus' return flight has been delayed, at least from our perspective, but he is surely coming back someday. And He is eager to prepare a most magnificent feast for his beloved bride, the church. 
it will be a most joyous occasion. The book of Revelation calls this the wedding supper of the Lamb. When this happens, the faithful will be united with God in holy matrimony for as long as we both shall live, which is, of course, forever. So, Jesus changes the usual scenario of Jewish weddings to fit his teaching purposes. In his scenario, the bridesmaids are apparently waiting at the groom's house while the groom returns from somewhere, from some venture. They know that he's coming back, they just don't know exactly when. But it's not proper just to wait for him to arrive and do nothing. Courtesy calls the bridesmaids to go out and meet the groom in advance, as soon as they hear about his coming, whenever he's drawing near, and then to bring him back to the house. So do you have that that picture in your mind? They're waiting for the groom to arrive to, to, to have the wedding, but they're going to meet him in advance. And that leads to a third similarity between the bridesmaids. It's in verse 5. Does anybody know what that third similarity is? Or my Bible quiz people. They all fall asleep, yes. The groom's return was delayed, and so they all fall asleep, all ten of them. He did not come immediately, but he did come. When? In the middle of the night, when everyone least expected And that's when things turn out quite differently for the two kinds of bridesmaids, which are really two kinds of Christians. You see, the first kind of bridesmaid, she's prepared. She's ready. She's an on-time person. She has thought through the possible scenarios and considered what she need. This thoughtfulness prompted her to bring what? To bring an extra flask of oil. That's the only difference between her and the other kind of bridesmaid. They have similarities, but the one difference, the wise bridesmaid brought an extra flask of oil. Why? Not because of her temperament, okay? The reason she brought the extra oil is because she did not presume to know when the groom would arrive. She did not presume to know whether he'd be early or late. After all, the groom never said when exactly he'd arrive, but just that he'd arrive. So she prepares for the long haul. She's going to be on time no matter what. For this reason, Jesus calls her wise, and she gets to party in the end at the most wonderful wedding ever. On a personal note, I hope you catch the coincidence in me preaching this text today. Stephanie and I thought the baby was coming last Wednesday, right? It was scheduled, but surprise, now we don't know the day or hour, but we better be ready. Bags are packed, babysitters in place. We are prepared. Joe, stop watching YouTube. (laughs) But the second kind of bridesmaid, thanks for the lamp, by the way, Joe. But the second kind of bridesmaid is unprepared. She has not thought through the implications of the groom's return. She presumes that he'll arrive early or on time. So she doesn't really think she needs to prepare. And that's one of her greatest faults, her presumption. Her unthinking sense that she knows what's about to happen. To her credit, 
She's not totally unprepared. She does bring the lamp with its oil in it, but she's not prepared for the long haul. She's only prepared for the short term and only if things happen according to her expectations. If they don't, she might just miss out on the most joyous celebration of all time. This is Jesus' parable of the two bridesmaids. But it's not really about how to prepare for a wedding, is it? Jesus is talking to his closest disciples about two kinds of Christians. And he's urging them to be the first kind while they still have time. So what are these two kinds of Christians? The first kind of Christian is ready no matter what. She brings the extra oil. She is ready no matter when Jesus returns or when she dies. No one knows when her hour will come, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes. Nothing is more certain in life than that it will come to an end, and still we are surprised. Surprised we may be, grief-stricken, and brokenhearted we will surely be when it happens to our loved ones, but ready we must also be all the more. The first kind of Christian is ready. Ready for what? Ready to meet her maker. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 reads, For all of us, all of us, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. The first kind of Christian is ready, ready to appear before the triune God in the court of law. Jesus is on the judge's bench, and she's ready to receive the verdict from her Lord, a verdict not based on what she's done, but based on who she knows, namely the judge himself, Jesus. But lest you think this is an unfair acquittal, consider that her friendship with the judge has shaped her entire way of life ever since, including how she treats others. She is forgiven her shortcomings just as she forgave others their shortcomings. So she will hear, and we shall too, the joyous verdict from our merciful friend Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. So it shall be, but only if we're ready. If we're not ready, we are like the second kind of Christian. In short bursts of religious enthusiasm, such a person is excited to meet the groom. Lord, Lord, she says, as she cozies up to Jesus on Judgment Day. But truth be told, she mostly wants Jesus to make her feel good. She is wholly unprepared for the long road of discipleship to Jesus. She is a believer, at least by profession, but turns out some believers don't really believe. Hers is a half-hearted trust in God. Her actions betray her supposed trust. She's made a half decision to be a Christian, but deep down doesn't want to take Christianity too seriously. She's excited at the thought of partying at the wedding, but doesn't feel the need to prepare for it. She forgets the extra oil. 
This Christian's heart is like rocky ground in Jesus' earlier parable. When the seed of the gospel is sown upon her heart, it springs up quickly. She has a genuine, temporary religious experience. And if the groom returned at just the right time, she might be okay. But if he delays, time will reveal her shallowness of faith. In the end, she won't be ready to feast with the king. She may try to cozy up once more to him, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for me. Don't you remember me from the first church of so-and-so? I'm so-and-so's granddaughter. But Jesus will respond to her utter dismay. I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. How would you like it if I ended right there? It'd be an odd transition to communion. (laughs) I would like to say that these words of Jesus are not meant to scare us, but I'm afraid they are. (laughs) They are intended to warn us while we still have time, to warn us of taking this Jesus thing only half seriously. They are also intended to warn those of us who are taking it quite seriously, but in a completely wrong direction without love. In any case, we cannot ignore this idea of judgment if we are to take Jesus seriously. But let's be honest here. Some of us are quite disapproving of Jesus' methods. Scare tactics, we might call them. I'm one of them. So I've got to ask myself, do I want Jesus as he really is or as I would want him to be? You may want to consider that for yourself. Do you want Jesus as he really is or as you would want him to be? If it's the first, then you have for yourself a mysterious Savior, merciful and just. If the second, a comforting idol. Now, there's one good reason for us to repel scare tactics, scaring the hell out of people, we might say. The reason is that certain preachers, historically, have badly abused this method in Jesus' name. Without intending to, they have caused a lot of damage to Jesus' reputation because of it, and little churches like ours are still suffering because of it. To be more specific, History has no shortage of hateful, bigoted Christian leaders telling groups of people they're going to hell. This is entirely opposed to the ways of Jesus. And here's the irony. It is these hateful Christians Jesus is trying to scare most severely. That's why the intended audience is so important. Jesus directs this warning to his closest disciples in a private conversation. Not to the crowds, not to pagans, not to other groups of people shouting from a megaphone, but to his friends. His friends who believe their agenda and God's agenda are in alignment, when in fact they are not. So let us close by talking about what we need to be ready. What do we need to be ready for the great day of the Lord? 
if this parable is any indication, we need extra oil. Extra oil. The extra oil is what distinguishes the two types of Christians from one another. So what is this extra oil? What does it signify? That's the first question. And the second is, what must we do to carry it around all the time? First, here's a list of what the extra oil might symbolize, according to various interpreters. The extra oil, according to some, that the wise bridesmaids bring is the oil of good works, or the oil of almsgiving, according to others. Make sure you have this extra oil. Still others suggest that the oil is humaneness to the needy, or fidelity to one's family and one's responsibilities, or faith, working itself through love. All of these may be implied here, but Jesus does not tell us exactly what it means to bring the extra oil. We have no explanation of this parable. I think it's because the extra oil is, a, a, is an all-inclusive term for all that we need to follow Jesus. The extra oil is costly discipleship to Jesus. Following Jesus day in and day out, that's what it means to be ready. As one scholar writes, our wisdom according to this parable consists in being concerned not just with this or with that, but with everything that has to do with our Christian lives. To bring the extra oil is to do the will of Jesus earnestly, resolutely avoiding everything that contradicts his word and person. Or as reformer Martin Luther famously said as he sought out to reform the church in the 1500s, he said in Thesis 1 of his 95 Theses, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended for the whole life of believers to be a life of repentance, a life of turning to God. So that's how we prepare for the coming of Jesus. It's that simple and that challenging. We strive to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. We aim to do nothing else but the will of Jesus. We do it for the long haul. We seek to live into the abundant life Jesus wants to give us, which is the narrow way of self-giving others regarding love. We seek to live according to the principles and power of God's kingdom now in the present. That's how we get ready for the fullness of God's kingdom that's coming in the future. So that's how we prepare. Second question, how can we be ensured that we're carrying this oil with us everywhere? To put it differently, what if we're afraid that we're not doing enough? What if we're worried that our good works might run out? What if we find ourselves in a dry season of doubt and despair due to the great troubles of this life? Are you telling me just to try harder, to believe in something I don't know if I can believe in? Are we thrown back on ourselves, ultimately, to achieve our own salvation? Certainly not. Well, then how do we get ready? We throw ourselves down at the feet of Jesus. We throw ourselves down at the feet of Jesus, and we borrow the words of a man who did the same. Remember the story of the father 
whose son was in excruciating pain, and he comes to Jesus for help. And he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That was enough for Jesus then, and it's enough for Jesus now. Maybe this is the only prayer you can squeak out of your overwhelmed heart. I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. It's enough for Jesus. Finally, let us all remember that the oil of faith and the oil of love is always the gift of God. I love how St. Augustine says it. He says the oil in this story is the gift of God. We can put oil into our lamps, but we ourselves cannot create the olive. So you have oil, carry it with you. What does it mean to carry it with you? To have it within where it is pleasing to God. Let us have the gift of God within us, which the Spirit of God has poured into our hearts. My friends, may our hearts, symbolized by lamps, may they always have within them a deep reserve of God's graciousness. And then we won't need to fear ever running short of oil. Our lamp of faith will burn hot, or at the very least it will burn. And when it gets dim, let us keep applying the oil of God's grace and love, which will never run out. And that's how we become on-time people when Jesus arrives at last. Let us pray. Lord, we want to be ready. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to heed your warnings while we have time. Thank you for your delay in that it gives us time for our repentance. Bring us all to the love love that's found in Jesus Christ. May that love transform how we treat others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.